Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. And thanks to Critical Cosmetics, the first hour of this show this evening is sponsored. My good friend Ravi, whose cosmetics are good enough to eat. And I know that because I eat them. Cosmetics are not really my thing. I'm kind of over the hill. I'm not sure how well they would work, although some people have remarked that I'm looking 10 minutes younger since I started using Critical Cosmetics, but I eat them every single night with my yogurt. That's how good and pure they are. They've got a special offer, which we'll bring to you in an ad later in the hour. But it's a really good deal, samples and free shipping and all of that. So big thanks to Critical Cosmetics. Please visit their website, 220KM, and you can see the kind of things I'm talking about. Now, on with the show. This is not about gay rights. I'm a Stonewall Award holder. I was fighting for gay rights when many of those who now parade their fidelity to the cause were still in short trousers. I was a pioneer in Parliament for gay rights, full and absolute and absolute pristine equality for gay people in Britain. No one can take that away from me. I am literally surrounded this evening by gay people. This has nothing to do with homosexuality. It has nothing to do with transsexuality. It has everything to do with exposing small children to premature sexualization. And it doesn't get much worse than the news that has broken today from, of all places, Mark Inch in Fife. If you have ever seen Mark Inch, you'll know how incongruous it is that the primary school there, to children as young as five and as old as 12, have been given a Scottish government questionnaire which grills them on their sexual orientation and questions them on their attitudes to other people's sexual orientation. This is far enough, Nicola Sturgeon. You're going to be free in 23, all right. Free of the encumbrance of office, for as Ladbrokes just put it, you are rapidly closing to a red-hot favorite for the sack. Your time has run out. And your Gender Recognition Act, the GRA, which Keir Starmer is pledged to replicate on a UK level, will be written on your political gravestone. This infatuation, this madness, 
in a douce wee Presbyterian country called Scotland goes so far against the grain that people have had enough. And there's a demonstration outside Holyrood, the Scottish Parliament, on the 12th of January. I'm hoping to be back in the country in time to join it myself. This has gone far enough. We want the scrapping of the Gender Recognition Act, and I warn Keir Starmer, if he makes this a platform of the Labour election campaign, we will be doing our best to defeat him. It's madness, not because we hate gay people, not because we hate trans people, not because we are anything other than for absolute equality amongst all people. As I say, I am myself literally surrounded by gay people. Some of my friends are trans people. I treat every person on this earth the way that they would want to be treated. But I have small children, you see. I have small children at primary school. I don't want them taught about sex, grilled about sex, encouraged to explore their gender when they're at primary school. Do you understand me? Nicola Sturgeon. Now, luckily, my children go to a Roman Catholic school. We have certain protections, although the churches have all been deathly quiet on this most important of moral matters. All the churches, including my own. I send my children to a Roman Catholic school partly to protect them from the encroachment of woke attitudes to gender and sexuality. But most people in Scotland are sending their children to state non-denominational schools and are now prey, and I use that word advisedly, to these creeps that devise these questionnaires to be placed in front of small children who don't even know what they're talking about. My children don't even know what a sparrow is. Never mind a transgender person, a gay person or a lesbian person. Why should they know? They're only five. They're only eight. Why should they know? I don't want them to know. And they're my children, not yours, Nicola Sturgeon. You don't have any children. And as a matter of fact, a very significant number of your ministers don't have any children. And it shows. And it's a very great pity. It's a very great pity for you personally, but it's an even bigger pity for our country. This is not just a Scottish issue, because Keir Starmer odds on to be Britain's next prime minister, at least after the general election, is pledged to take the same low road as Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP have taken. Unless Boris Johnson comes back, the Tories' goose is cooked. I don't know if Rishi eats goose, if he eats meat at all. I know nothing about his dietary habits, but he is dead meat. His goose is cooked. He is standing at 19% in the public opinion polls. Now, I warned the Tories. I mean, why should I warn them? I want them 
to be annihilated. But I warned them that if they got rid of Boris Johnson, this would happen. Then they picked somebody called Liz Truss momentarily. I know you've all forgotten about her and the Tories wish that everyone would forget it ever happened. But she was 44 days, I think, the Prime Minister of Great Britain. Give or take a day or two. Liz Truss has been replaced by somebody even less popular with even less of the common touch. It's a bit hard to have the common touch when you are literally a billionaire. You're a British prime minister who is a billionaire, who has an American green card in his pocket and who's never done a day's work except pushing derivatives in front of a computer screen. A man who knows nothing of life in Great Britain is our Prime Minister. It's a wonder he has 19% in the public opinion polls. The Tories are going to have to ditch him. However embarrassing it is to ditch trust then Rashid Sanuk, as Joe Biden called him, in quick succession, it's going to have to be done. Because if the Tories poll 19%, and we'll know in May, in the local elections, just how badly in real-world politics they're doing, if they poll 19%, Labour will win 550 seats in Parliament, and even Rashid Sanouk will lose his seat in Parliament. Labour will have a Parliament that they don't just control but a two-thirds majority in the parliament. It would be unprecedented. Now, the Tories are nothing if not pragmatic. And so let me give them this bit of pragmatic advice. You may not win under Boris Johnson. In fact, you almost certainly will lose. But you won't be reduced to 120 MPs or 110, actually. You won't lose virtually every parliamentary seat you currently hold if Boris Johnson is your leader. So as I want the next election to at least be competitive, because I can think of nothing, nothing, that's a big statement, more frightening than Tony Blair's new, new Labour Party having 550 seats in the British House of Commons, as I want the election to be at least more competitive than it is currently looking, I'm advising the Tories to bring back Boris. Now, given the money he's been earning, you might not be able to tempt him back. After all, you didn't exactly treat him well when you had him. But if you don't, if you stick with Sunak, if you think you can rub along with Rishi, you are headed for oblivion. And the British economy is already tanking. As I said in my monologue on Sunday, Britain is the worst affected country in the entire industrialized world from the current convection of conflicts and problems crises and dilemmas of any developed 
economy, Britain, is the worst. Our recession is going to be deeper than absolutely everyone else's, including Germany, hitherto imagined to be the worst affected. This confluence of high energy prices, although gas prices are falling for everyone except the customers that are using the gas. Go figure that one. Petrol and diesel prices are falling for everyone except those that are using the diesel and the petrol. Go figure that one. But the unemployment, the rate of inflation, which may well reach 15% by April, with mortgage rates accordingly dragged up, debt burdens simply uncarryable by the mass of the population, unable to afford that which is increasingly less available in the shops because of the cost of freight, transport, diesel, and all the rest, and the cost of energy, which is leading to companies closing like Bilio. Britain will have more business failures in the next 12 months, according to the Bank of England, than any other country in the world, and I include Burkina Faso. Our businesses, 15% of them, are going to fail this year. And this year has only just begun. Next year will be even worse. Our economy is in a nosedive, the bottom of which cannot yet be discerned. And as we are all at sea economically, we are led by a pygmy political class. You're allowed to say that now. A pygmy dwarfish political class that couldn't lace the boots of the political class that ruled Britain, including in the Conservative Party, for so very long. When I entered Parliament 35 years ago, you had a hundred people who could credibly contend and claim that they could be Prime Minister by the afternoon. Now we have Prime Ministers who can't claim credibly that they can be the Prime Minister. So we're in very serious trouble. But especially on the subject of war and peace. Put this date in your diary. On the 25th of February in central London will be a no to NATO, no to war rally, bang in the center of London, venue to be announced in the next few days. And when it is announced, you better register your interest immediately because it will sell out. Because the speakers are me, Chris Williamson, Claire Daly, MEP, Mick Wallace, MEP, Max Blumenthal, Anya Parampel, and all kinds of giants. I'm going to keep up my sleeve. I'm going to announce them week by week until February the 25th in central London. It's a Saturday. It'll be all day. Put it in your diary now and make sure you're there. Just a few days before that, there's going to be a monster rally 
in Washington, D.C. on the same subject, no to NATO, no to war. We haven't given up on life yet. We are not going to allow these gerontocratic, imbecilic, slavering warmongers to destroy our planet for our children and their children that may forever be unborn. We are not prepared to be dragged into war with Russia and China over the Paracel Islands or whether or not Kupiansk should be in East Ukraine or West Ukraine. We don't give a toss. Not a toss. It's not our business. Our business is fixing our own people's lives at home. Our business is making sure our economy doesn't tank and sink. Our business is making sure our children have a decent school with a decent curriculum to go to. Our business is ending the collapse of the National Health Service, which is buckling, bending, breaking under the pressure this winter, and the winter isn't nearly over yet. Our business is making sure our own borders are secure, not redrawing other people's borders. Our business is making sure that our armed forces are defending our island, not imperiling other peoples. Our business is making sure that this vortex in which our culture, in which our society is currently sucked and sinking, this vortex is broken from that we reset. People talk about the great reset. I'm in favor of a reset, just not the same one that the World Economic Forum have in mind. I want to reset relations between Britain and Europe, Britain and America, Britain and Russia and China, Britain and the world. I want to reset relations between those that do the work in our economy and those that cream the profits from our economy. I want to reset the relationship between the state and the private sector in our economy. I want to reset workers' rights to what they once were and always should have been. I want to reset justice in our country so that instead of Julian Assange wasting away in a dungeon, it's the criminals he exposed that are in the dock and on trial and if found guilty, sent to prison for the rest of their lives. All of this is up for debate, of course. You can call the show and have your say. After all, it is the mother of all talk shows. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. 
For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I mentioned the mega rally that is building in Washington, D.C., just a few days before our February 25th rally. We're trying to make this a global rebellion against war, against NATO aggression, and against the danger of nuclear conflagration. And so, of course, I'm joined by Nick Branagh, the national chair of the People's Party of the United States of America, a man I've long wanted to meet and hope to in person uh, someday soon. Nick Branagh, thank you for uh, joining us. We didn't uh, confer before arranging our two events but it is amazing. It was left uh, thee and me to arrange them. Uh, tell us what you've got going on. When, where, and why for? We are going to Washington, D.C., here in the United States, uh, the Lincoln Memorial, and we are going to rage against the war machine. We are demanding an end to this senseless, suicidal war in Ukraine that our government apparently has endless billions for while not having any funds for people who are living under every bridge in this country for people who do not have health care, people who don't have food to eat. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go rage against the war machine. We are going to have musicians, rock bands, veterans, speakers, and then we are going to finish it off with a march to the White House, and we're going to deliver our demands directly to warmonger-in-chief Joe Biden. Enough of this war, enough of the freedoms you're taking from us because of this war, enough of the billions going to from, from our taxpayers to pay for this war, enough of the tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands that you've killed, and enough risking and bringing us to the edge of global nuclear war. Well, very powerfully put, and as you were making that case, I got to wondering, uh, how come in the parliaments, yours and mine, uh, there's no echo of this? Uh, the British parliament's even worse, actually. At least there are some right-wing Trumpite uh, elements within your parliament uh, who are raging against this war. But in Britain, there is little unanimity. There is actual unanimity behind the NATO war in Ukraine. And yet, as you describe it, the opportunity cost of all that money we've spent on the war of uh, the homeless people, the hungry people, the jobless people, the poor people, the underpaid people, the people who can't get ahead, can't get a house. They're the ones who paid the price for the uncountable billions, because nobody's counting it. Certainly nobody's auditing how it's spent. How come in the political class, there's absolutely no echo of any of this? 
Well, I was amazed to learn about a month ago that a version of what played out here in the United States when the progressives here, the squad, AOC, briefly, meekly approached Biden and the other Democrats, the corporate Democrats, asking them, will you please negotiate at the same time that you're providing endless billions for war? And that in itself with such a weak and pathetic call but they withdrew it within 24 hours, within 24 hours. And I was amazed to learn that a version of that had happened in the UK as well within the Labour Party. And so here in the United States, both parties are almost unanimously for war. But incredibly, the Democrat Party is now the party that is the most warmongering, always when Trump was in office, giving Trump more money than he asked for for the military industrial complex, giving adding tens of billions of dollars to the military uh, to the military budget, which is eight hundred and fifty billion dollars here in the United States now. And also, of course, having perfectly unanimous support for the war, Unit every single package of support up to this latest one, this additional 50 billion, every single Democrat voted for it. And they they talked about it with pride. Even the Progressive Caucus, which was supposed to be anti-war, even Bernie Sanders, they talked about it with pride, about how they're sending all of this money that could be going back to taxpayers, that could be helping people in so many other ways. They're sending endless amounts. And so people in this country are getting tired. And like you said, in the United States and the UK, that's where we have to rebel first and foremost, because no other country can end this conflict. When Russia and the U and Ukraine tried to negotiate an end in March, just one month after the invasion, the United States and the UK sabotaged it. And so it's up to people in this country to rise up. And something that we're very concerned about is it's clear that Ukraine is going to lose this war. But what are the neocons going to do when that happens? There, you have Petraeus on the Sunday shows. He's like the errand boy of the CNN delivering the, the I mean, of the CIA, delivering the CIA and the Pentagon's message. And he is talking about a coalition of the willing with Polish or Romanian soldiers or other soldiers that go in once Ukraine has absolutely lost, now that once they've killed even the children that they're sending to the front lines in Ukraine that the Zelensky regime is sending. And so what is going to happen at that point when Ukraine loses? Is it going to become a world war because NATO or NATO countries begin sending in their own soldiers with American soldiers, that kind of coalition of the willing? Or is there going to be enough resistance in our countries, the United States and the UK, to prevent that from happening? And that would almost certainly lead us to a nuclear war. If you had other NATO countries sending their soldiers, getting into direct conflict with Russia, Russia's warned about this. And even NATO chief Jen Stoltenberg warned about this last month that he fears that this is going to become a direct war between NATO, the US and Russia. And that's why you have even the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, demanding, saying, this is insane. We need to negotiate an end to this war now. I'll tell you what, Nick, you only think it's incredible that the Democrats are the most warmongering of the two parties because you're young. 
and I wish uh, I was as young as you, because all of my life, the so-called Democratic Party has been dripping in blood, tooth and claw, from Vietnam, uh, from all of the conflicts of the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, right up to uh, the Saint Barack Obama and the destruction of Libya, the turning of Libya back into a slave trading nation, uh, the uh, bombing of, uh, of half the world, the sanctioning of the other half, all of these are made in the Democratic uh, Party. Uh, and I'm ashamed to say, as someone who was a member of it for 36 years, that the British Labour Party is in the same position now. The reason no Labour MP can speak out against the war is because they will literally be expelled, suspended, deselected as a candidate. That much has been made abundantly clear to them. Uh, and so when you say, as you correctly did, that if not us, uh, then who? And if not now, then when? This is a British and American war. And if World War III comes along, it will have been driven by the United States and the United Kingdom. What is it about the Anglo-Saxons, Nick? Yeah, I mean, ever since the end of the Second World War, when... The United States became the global hegemon, took over the reins from the UK. There has been, at, at that time, at the end of the Second World War, the United States had half of global GDP. It was the undisputed military and economic superpower, only country with nuclear weapons. Well, in the last 70 years, there have been some developments. There's a, the rise of other countries, China, Russia, the BRICS nations, and they don't want to be subjugated by an American empire that is running, uh, uh, waging wars across the world, uh, demanding that every other nation uh, fall in line with the United States. And so now, up to the present, we have the rise of these other countries, but we have these insane neocons in the U.S., at the Pentagon, at the CIA, in the private military contractors that are a part of the deep state that actually runs this country. And they have this delusion that they can somehow maintain global hegemony, American hegemony, with their military power, just as it was with the fall of Rome, trying to hold on to that power desperately and doing whatever it takes. And these people are mar have marched us right up to the edge of a nuclear war with Russia. And it is unbelievable that you have people within the U.S. government, within NATO, even warning of that. That's what we see happening. There is there should not be any kind of global hegemonic country, and it most certainly should not be this country. It doesn't benefit the people of the United States. We give up our freedoms. We give up our tax money for it. We give up 
our, our own soldiers that we've sent to die in these wars, and we kill millions of people abroad. There's nothing to be gained. The only people that gain are the military industrial complex, the corporations that they feed, all of the billions of dollars that are not even leaving the beltway, that are going to Raytheon and Boeing right here, that are going to the Pentagon, and that are going as kickbacks then to the Democrat Party and the Republican Party, the members of Congress who are themselves in enriching themselves with the stock of these military companies. Those are the only people who benefit. Nobody in the United States benefit. The people of this country don't benefit. The people of the UK don't benefit. And the people of the world most certainly do not benefit. Well, uh, the, the reason we uh, are trying to beat uh, the rising alternative powers on the battlefield is because we cannot beat them in any other field. We cannot beat them economically, we cannot beat them in terms of their science base, their education base, the health of their people, the longevity of their people. My goodness, Cuba, uh, people in Cuba live longer than they do in the United States. Fewer children die in Cuba uh, than die in uh, infancy in the United States. Uh, the, the economies, of uh, countries like China uh, are so fast overtaking uh, the so-called G7 uh, countries uh, that uh, the only way to stop them is to make war. Uh, the problem is uh, making war runs the risk of, of nuclear conflagration. And I don't think your people or my people have quite woken up to that yet that the people they are trying to push around are a nuclear-armed group of countries uh, that are more than ready to uh, fight back against this fading, failing, uh, not even Roman empire. They're doing things, George, that they didn't do, uh, even that were unthinkable during the Cold War. The bombing of nuclear air bases in Russia, which has now happened not once, but twice. And the United States, the CIA, the Pentagon have greenlit that bombing of nuclear air bases in Russia. That is truly unbelievable. The degree to which they've the United States is also surfacing nuclear subs to menace Russia with nuclear weapons. They've deployed the 101st Airborne Division to Romania, to the border with Ukraine. And those soldiers, those American troops are now crossing the border into Ukraine, risking again direct fire between nuclear superpowers. Russia is reevaluating its nuclear posture considering adopting a first strike policy, the kind that the United States has right now, the risk of nuclear war is real and we don't get a practice run. There's only, it will happen once and everybody will die. The nuclear winter will kick up millions of tons of soot into the upper atmosphere, block out the sun, kill all agriculture, destroy the food chain. Billions of people will die in the nuclear blasts and then famine and then 
plague. That's the future that awaits us unless people rise up in the United States and the UK, the two chief aggressor nations, and demand an end to this. And here in the US, we're not just demanding an end to this war, we're demanding an end to the war machine as a whole. We're saying abolish NATO, abolish the CIA, slash the military budget, cut it in half, and end this empire that is threatening to, to kill everyone at this point. So lastly, uh, tell everyone uh, in the U.S. who's watching uh, exactly where they should be, on what day and at what time. Come join us at the Lincoln Memorial on February 19th. This is going to be one week before No to NATO. And so come join us. We are going to rally at, at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., and then we are going to march to the White House. And I'm very happy to see that you, George, are organizing No to NATO, No to War. And I hope that others, uh, along with Claire Daly, Mick Wallace, I hope that they will stand up in their countries, that there will be protests across Europe. I know that we want to collaborate to make this international. That's what it has to be. It has to be an international week of rebellion against war and against annihilation. Nick Branagh, the national chair of the People's Party of America. I'm deeply grateful for your appearance this evening. Good luck with the event. Now, uh, we've got a poll running. Uh, your outlook, I've never seen a poll of ours uh, so evenly divided. Your outlook for 2023 is it A, gloom, B, doom, or C, boom? And it is almost exactly equal, one-third one third, one third. You can vote on my Twitter feed and on my YouTube channel. If you are watching on my YouTube channel, please subscribe and also like the show. And on my Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway. Now, uh, the Patreon subscribers, my most loyal uh, supporters, patreon.com forward slash George Galloway, where so much of my work uh, is now, uh, including the reading of H.G. Wells, soon to be the reading of Seven Pillars of Wisdom by T.E. Lawrence. Uh, here are some uh, comments. Doris Eisler says, we'll be lucky with just gloom, or are we going for broke? We do seem to be flirting with the whole package. Indeed, we do. That's the point I'm making. And the boom should have had a, an exclamation mark after it, because boy, I mean, boom. Uh, now, uh, Akram Nasser Bakht says GRA should be written on the grave of any politician who implements it. I honestly think that the Scottish nationalists have gone mad. If you knew Scotland like I know it, if you knew the Scottish people like I know them, if you knew Mark Inch, if you knew Fife, Mark Inch, a mining area, Colliery, the famous Mark Inch Colliery. Its children, aged five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, are being asked in school about their sexual orientation in the name of GRA. Are you mad? I think that politicians need to think twice about where they're going uh, on this road. They're abolishing women. They're sexualizing children, all in the name of what and for whom, in whose interest. That's what I'd like to know. 
Uh, Anthony McKen says at least Rishi can put the PM position on his resume for his future job with Goldman Sachs. He'll end up owning Goldman Sachs, not working for them. Uh, and Guy Thomas Gnanko says, I've been only one year at this University of the Airwaves, and yet my knowledge is higher than my PhD peers on mainstream media. Thank you, Professor George Galloway. Thank you, Guy. I really appreciate that as someone that left school as uh, at uh, 16, 17, and went to work in a factory making tires, never been to university. To have you say that to me is very, very touching. Galway Video News says it's very reassuring that you have many fine contributors to the show from the US. Americans are waking up. That's why I want, as early as possible this year, to launch Friday night Moats America. Not, not presented by me, presented by Americans. And uh, with the guests chosen by Americans. I'll chip in from uh, time to time and we'll run the back shop, as it were. So it will be the mother of all talk shows, but it will be an American edition at a time more easily accessible by more people in America. Don't forget that 9 p.m. UK time is 4 p.m. in New York. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know, still morning in California, in Los Angeles and so on. So the timings are, are difficult. We are two nations divided by a common language, but a very, very big time difference. So the Friday night, uh, Moats America is my New Year resolution. And if you want to help with that, please, if you're watching on YouTube now, go to Super Chat and make a donation. If you're watching on Rumble or on, uh, on Twitter or on Facebook, all the platforms that we're on, please go to our website, moats.tv, and give on the donate button there. That would be really helpful. You can even make a recurring donation, one pound a week, one dollar a week, one euro a week. Let's get Moats America up and running. Let's go to America now, to Virginia, and talk with Saad on UK politics. Go ahead, Saad. Hello, uh, Dr. Uh, Mr. Galloway. Uh, this is Saad again. I always love and enjoy listening to your shows. And um, just wanted to say, as being a dual citizen of the United Kingdom, United States, I'm even concerned about uh, the stuff uh, going on in the UK and politics. It seems like, just like every other corner in the world, a lot of uh, politicians, such as, uh, such as parliamentary members, just don't allow things to happen for the best interest of their people. I personally think, you know, that it would be best if it was just to go how it was 75 or 100 years ago, where the royal family just makes the major decisions or foreign policy decisions for the country rather than going through all this other nonsense, you know, because these other, these other doors are, oh, is, it are like revolving do doors. It just comes right back to this same spot, square one again. I personally think that it should just go back to what it was 75 or 100 years ago, where the royal families are making the major decisions along with their advisors. That's really my opinion. Now, some people may not like it, but I think that out of the two options, that would perhaps be the best option. And what, however you... Uh, well, a hundred, uh, uh, Saad, a hundred years ago, 
the three grandsons of Queen Victoria uh, forced their populations to fight the First World War amidst the gas, the blood and the gore and the carnage of the trenches of World War I. So your formula doesn't have a great track record. Uh, to uh, advocate leaving it to King Charles to decide our, uh, our orientation can only mean you've been away too long in the United States and haven't seen King Charles. Let's go to Ian in Hounslow. Go ahead, Ian. Hello, George. Now, opening, uh, your opening speech, um, you talked about the GRA in Scotland and the madness there and how Starmer wants to bring it all over. Now, at the moment, mm. we have the online safety bill being proposed. That was to protect children. And now politicians have muscled in to say, oh, we want to be protected too because people say nasty things about us. And they cited the assassination of Airy Neve and the murder of David Amos. Neither had anything to do with the internet. But they, their arguments are so thin that they would muscle in on an act to protect children and then cite those two unconnected incidents. And that just shows you where we're going. Well, Erin Eve, Eve was killed <coughs> long before the internet was invented by Al Gore. Absolutely. But these, these people, these, they have, they're living in an irony-free zone, George. Absolutely, an irony-free zone. And there is a campaign... Why is Starmer uh, doing this, Ian? Why is Starmer you know, doing this? I, I mean, I, think I, I get the impression that these people sit and calculate how votes are gained and the uh, loss of votes avoided, uh, that they are desiccated calculating machines. But I must be wrong about that. Because it cannot be electorally possible uh, to advocate for young children to be allowed to, without the knowledge, never mind permission of their parents, reassign their gender whilst at school. That cannot possibly be electorally possible, can it? George is a dead cat. The dead cat was the abolition of the House of Lords. The dead cat was, let's make private schools pay VAT. The dead cat is the GRA, because he's got nothing else to offer. You yourself called him wooden. Well, there's the evidence. Great call. Thanks, Ian, in London. Uh, let's go to Wilma in Bath on, I think, a uh, similar kind of subject. Go ahead, Wilma. Hi, George. Uh, fantastic to be talking Hi. to you. I love you and I watch your show every week. I donate every week and blah, blah. Um, this sexualization of children has actually been passed. It's been taken to court in Wales by the people and the, they lost, the people lost their case. It has been passed. It's, the judgment has been made for the case of sexualizing children. Um, I, I, do you understand it, Wilma? Uh, is it just me? Am I no, too old? I, no. I don't understand it. No, I don't. I don't under. I do understand it. I know that. I mean, I'm in a. I'm in an unusual position. I am both old, and I have very young children. 
so there's not many people in my uh, situation. But I'm long enough in the tooth to know, as a father of six children, that I don't want my small children prematurely introduced to sexual matters when they are still small primary school children who are thinking about, you know, um, Barbie uh, dolls and footballs rather than sexual orientations and whether or not, you know, people masturbate and how they do it and with what they do it. And all of this is now creeping into schools. And I don't Barbie understand why. I don't understand why the politicians... Go on, go on. I'm saying Barbie dolls and Ken dolls are probably where it all started. I'm wondering if you've ever heard of Alfred Kinsey. Yes. Because the, chil- the school sexual the sex- education system is based... Yes. The school sex education system is based on his theories. Now, I don't know if you've looked into him, but his practices were absolutely horrifying with newborn babies. And he actually used paedophiles in his research and asked paedophiles to forward information to him from results of, does a child have an orgasm? Right, and we're talking newborn babies being masturbated now look, uh, Wilma, for 24 uh, hours. Now, Wilma, I can hear from your voice that though you're living in Bath, you are uh, Scottish. Do you know that the police in Scotland uh, are now to refer to paedophiles as minor attracted persons? Oh my God, I've just, I've just commented on a statement about that today. Can I just say, George, I am a victim of child sexual abuse. And I've held it. I've never said a word about anything to anybody until recently, about three years ago, the, there was a, a government um, initiative to say anybody that's been u- abused as a child, please come forward. And I went forward. And one, uh, there was many of my abusers, but one of my abusers was jailed just about six months ago for five years for historical child sex abuse and yet they're now promoting child sex abuse I just cannot figure out where they're going so we've got one side of the government saying oh, all these people that abused hundreds of years ago well not hundreds of years ago but okay 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago we're going to catch them and we're going to punish them and they're doing that but the other side of the coin they're saying, oh, no, let's promote this and, and, and make it normalized and let everybody think, oh, no, 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 it's not a big deal. Everybody does it. It's, it's good for the children to be aware that they might be abused and, and what to do, if anything. And they're using that as, a, as a, an excuse. They're using it as a saying, this is a warning. We're helping children to be aware of it and therefore they should report it if anything like this happens which didn't happen in a way in the past but then they're saying sorry I think they're using that as an excuse to promote paedophilia 
or minor attracted persons. Uh, I do, Wilma, a very powerful and uh, self-revealing call. Uh, I myself uh, was a victim of child sexual abuse at primary school at the hands of someone employed uh, in the primary school. So I feel your uh, pain uh, on that. Uh, It is uh, a difficult subject, this. I make no apology for bringing it up. Whatever the answer is, it is not. It is not questionnaires to five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven-year-old children about sexual matters. Um, about forty years ago, not exaggerating, I lent Lula. 200 US dollars. I remember very well the feel of them in my hand as I placed them in his because he was then an impecunious trade union leader who was happened to be in London on a speaking tour and needed a break. I gave him that break. I have no intention of asking for the $200 back. All I ask is that the Lula who governs now as president of Brazil stays as closely as possible as he can to the Lula of the mid-1980s when the financial transaction took place. Good news in Brazil, not so good news in Argentina where the vice president, Cristina Kirchner, and most people believe the next president of Argentina has been subject to the same kind of fake lawfare that uh, brought down Lula and Dilma, his successor, in the first place. Fake, trumped-up charges, uh, engineered uh, in the U.S. Embassy usually and implemented through the remaining bastions of the establishment and the uh, Washington uh, establishment in Latin American countries. And, of course, in Peru, where only so very recently we... Uh, celebrated the election of a progressive president there. That progressive has been, that president has been brought down again in uh, this time a parliamentary coup d'etat and the masses who elected him are on the streets and being gunned down by the security forces. So uh, traffic is not all one way uh, in Latin America. It's uh, not all rosy or even pink, let alone red. One man who knows more than anybody else uh, on this show, at least in the English language, at least is Ole Vargas. He is the host of Latin America Review and co-founder of Kausachon News. And he joins us now. Ole, thanks. Very good to see you again. I'm uh, right, Amantai. It is a mixed bag, but... Let's start with the, with the good news. Tell us about Lula and what we can expect now that he's back in the president's house. Hi, George. It's uh, really great to be back um, and speaking to you again. And absolutely, a very exciting news coming out of Brazil that um, you know, after being jailed on false charges, uh, Lula is now being elected president of Brazil. And the former right-wing president, Jair Bolsonaro, is uh, now in Miami, in uh, understanding Orlando, 
Miami, like many uh, uh, disgraced former right-wing politicians in Latin America. So that's um, the situation in Brazil. And the Lula's uh, inauguration speech, I think, laid out his priorities going forward, a speech in which he um, shed a tear in a moment of... Um, of touching vulnerability, you could say, when he was talking about the immense poverty that's been building up in Brazil, uh, especially over the last few years, where inequality has been growing, where unemployment has been growing, where uh, crime and violence uh, as a result of these things has also been growing. And he also touched on issues such as uh, protecting uh, the environment, as many people know, the devastating forest fires that destroyed much of the Amazon uh, during Bolsonaro's reign. He also stated very clearly uh, about Brazil's commitment to Latin American integration. And Bolsonaro is someone that um, certainly, at least at the beginning of his term, looked more towards the United States than to Latin American neighbors. But at the end of his term, uh, he was a uh, flying solo after uh, getting in his own personal fights with uh, President Biden. But the, the, the cause of Latin American unity and Latin American sovereignty have been left by the wayside. And as a result, the whole of Latin America is weaker because Brazil is, of course, the, the largest country in Latin America, the biggest economy, uh, one of the most important uh, economies in, in the entire world. So to have uh, a government that wasn't committed to building that Latin American unity was something that was weak in the whole region. And now Brazil will be turning towards its, uh, its natural allies within the region, countries like Bolivia, where I'm speaking to you from. Um, and also, uh, the, for example, Venezuela, where Bolsonaro, of course, had recognized the self-declared uh, politician Juan Guaido um, as the uh, so-called president of Venezuela and expelled the legitimate ambassador of the government of Nicolas Maduro. That has now uh, been annulled um, and the Brazil now has restored relations with uh, the elected government of Venezuela at, at the head of President Nicolas Maduro. And they've uh, restored full, uh, yeah, full, full diplomatic and, and political relations. They've even lifted uh, a law that the uh, Bolsonaro had introduced the banning uh, President Maduro from entering Brazil, uh, something that was very damaging for both countries because they, they share a border, uh, of course. And, you know, when you share a border with countries, there has to be a degree of cooperation. But um, the reckless policies of the previous government had, had broken down all those relationships within Latin America. So it's uh, incredibly important for Latin America as a whole to have a president committed to, to building forums uh, like, for example, UNASU that was destroyed by Bolsonaro, forums in which the countries of Latin America can come together, discuss this you need to without the presence of the United States and Canada. And that's very important that the United States and Canada are only ever in favor of regional forums in which they are included, but of course they have very different interests to countries of Latin America and uh, the, the organizations built in the early 2000s by people like Lula, by people like Hugo Chavez and Evo Morales um, will now begin their process of being rebuilt. So that, 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 that union among Latin America is uh, something that Lula is going to spearhead. He even discussed uh, the pos I mean, during the campaign, the possibility of launching a, a currency for Latin America to trade in. Uh, this wouldn't be uh, like the euro, which 
people using that they say this would be a currency for trading because of course in latin america trade is done in us dollars uh, rather than uh, local currency so lula proposed the currency uh, you know so so latin america is no longer dependent on us dollar these are some of the exciting policies that are being uh, proposed very interesting we'll come to ex president juan guaido uh, in a minute i think he might be applying for the chelsea job which uh, must uh, soon be available. Uh, But the uh, Bolsonaro, uh, we haven't heard the last of him, have we? Uh, He is now ensconced with the gold-toothed Demi Grays in Miami, uh, best place for him. Uh, But uh, he didn't give up uh, willingly. He didn't give up graciously. Uh, He stayed until the last possible minute. He avoided Uh, Lula's inauguration. Uh, He nearly won the election. It was a close-run thing. Uh, And, of course, if he hadn't fallen out with Biden, he might, in those circumstances, have been tempted to hang on in the hope of a military coup. Or will the right in Brazil find another champion? In other words, is Bolsonaro the new Juan Guaido? Uh, or is he a potential comeback kid? Well, that has to be seen. I think uh, if Bolsonaro hadn't got in the, the, the scrap that he had with Joe Biden, he may still be president now, uh, having stayed through uh, through a sort of self, Fujimori-style self-coup. And it's quite an interesting dynamic, really, and it shows the lack of political nous on the part of Bolsonaro, which would suggest that perhaps he he won't be uh, uh, coming back as a figure in politics. And that is that, of course, when President Trump was in power, Bolsonaro was a very close ally of the United States. Um, They were friends on a personal level. And then when Joe Biden was elected, uh, he himself, especially Bolsonaro's sons, uh, continued essentially running a campaign for on behalf of Donald Trump, his children, who play a big role in the Brazilian government, uh, were talking about the, you know, the, the idea that the election was stolen from Trump. And so this put the Brazil in a collision course with the United States. And now, of course, the United States, I think, you know, Joe Biden, if Bolsonaro had been willing to play ball, Joe Biden would be more than happy to, uh, to, to, to give Bolsonaro a helping hand. But I think uh, Bolsonaro didn't have the, the, the political nous to um, you know, maintain uh, some sort of alliance with the new administration in the United States, and so when the election time came, I think they were unwilling to uh, to support his fantasies of a coup, and I think that's definitely what you wanted to do. Before the election even took place, when all the polls showed that Lula was uh, on course for victory, he started talking about how the uh, the, the election system is unreliable um, and you know open to to being rigged for for Lula. Of course, this is the of course he is the one in power at that time. Um, of course, that was the same election system which he was elected on um, four years prior, but that was preparing the ground for a possible self-coup, as you'd say. Um, but I think his, his, you know, a lack of political strategy and not making friends with the White House, I think, uh, left that that idea dead in the water. Now he's in Orlando. I saw uh, I saw a picture yesterday, him in a KFC, enjoying some uh, some chicken. And I, I think he may be dedicating himself to that over the next couple of years. Trump, 
uh, he might well have been meeting up with Donald Trump uh, for a for a burger uh, and coke. Uh, Ollie, the uh, how would what can we do now about this Juan Guaido who uh, has now been derecognized by Brazil? Uh, he has been kicked out by the Venezuelan opposition. He's no longer even the leader of the opposition, and yet all kinds of countries, including incredibly our own, the United Kingdom, recognizes somebody called Juan Guaido as the entirely fictitious president of the great oil-producing giant Venezuela. Uh, And in fact, the Bank of England has given Venezuela's gold to this guy, Juan Guaido. Where is that gold? And where is Juan Guaido in this now changed diplomatic picture? You're right. The the United Kingdom or the Bank of England uh, is holding more than one billion dollars worth of gold uh, that belongs to the people of Venezuela, to uh, the Venezuelan public, and in which in 2019, when the Venezuelan government wants to withdraw that to, to weather some of the some of the effects of the economic sanctions of the United States that were triggering, you know, uh, food shortages, medicine shortages. Uh, and so, of course, the Venezuelan government tried to recoup all the assets they had to try and uh, provide, a, provide a cushion for, for people during that time. And the, the British government decided, actually, no, we are now keeping hold of that gold. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's essentially no longer yours. Juan Guaido and these officials uh, with assets like this, also in the United States, the oil company Citgo, which belongs to the Venezuelan government, was essentially uh, take was essentially taken over by the U.S. government. Um, and the, Juan Guaido is always trying to get hold of these sort of billion, multi-billion uh, dollar assets. Now that strategy of recognizing, uh, you know, a man that declared himself president in the street in in 2019, uh, has clearly failed. The the majority, almost no Latin American countries recognize him. Uh, as president anymore, uh, I believe uh, Paraguay and Uruguay still still do, um, but the the rest of the countries you know surrounding Venezuela no longer recognise it, um, and have now restored relations with the 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 elected government of Venezuela of President Nicolas Maduro. But um, th- for the United States, it's a difficult one because. They clearly no longer want to, well, they, they can see that this strategy has failed as a strategy that began under President Trump and then continued under President Biden almost entirely. But now it's become clear that, that it's, it's no longer realistic. However, they don't want to be seen to be climbing down. Um, but the other complicating factor, of course, for the United States is that they... Uh, they have now sanctioned Russia, um, which has not disrupted energy markets uh, on a tremendous level. And bringing back Venezuelan oil onto the global markets is something that could stabilize energy prices, that could you know, stop some of the uh, runaway fuel prices that we're seeing in, in places like Europe and, and the UK, et cetera. Um, however, they... As I said, they don't want to be seen as climbing down. They don't want to make a move that would benefit the government of the Nicolas Maduro. But of course, they're now left with fewer and fewer 
options because their strategy to get rid of Maduro has failed. Also, they need Venezuelan oil. And there are negotiations going on right now, uh, closed-door negotiations between uh, officials of, uh, of the US government and the Venezuelan government about how Venezuelan, gov- uh, Venezuelan oil can bring back. And, of course, the context to all this, which is very important for me, Uh, the most important story coming out of Latin America over the past few years is the economic recovery of Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela's economy was destroyed by U.S. sanctions, uh, you know, particularly around 2018, 2019 was the worst of it. Um, GDP just absolutely collapsing, oil production absolutely collapsing. And now what we're seeing is Venezuela is the fastest growing economy in South America. It's getting double digit uh, GDP growth uh, on, a, on a yearly basis. And in fact, 2021 was the first year since sanctions began where they had positive economic growth rather than negative economic growth. And inflation, monthly inflation is now down to, to single figures, around 7-8%, uh, which is lower than, for example, Argentina. Um, and, you know, which from a high of triple figures, monthly inflation at the height of year sanctions. And so Venezuela has managed to restore uh, oil production at over a million barrels a day now, uh, which is 10 times what they had at the, at the height of the sanctions. So Venezuela is in a much stronger position to negotiate. If this crisis, uh, this conflict in Ukraine that happened in 2018 or 2019, Venezuela wouldn't have many cars to play. They're in a very desperate situation. However, they no longer are. So now they can demand respect for, for their sovereignty in exchange uh, for, for their oil coming back onto the global markets. Fascinating. Now, quickly, uh, Oli, although they deserve longer, uh, Christina is uh, out the game or is she? Uh, as a result of uh, conviction, many people, including me, believe a trumped-up conviction, and the poor president of Peru has been deposed. Tell us as succinctly as you can, and no one can do it more succinctly than you, uh, about these two little vignettes. Yes, Argentina has had an incredibly difficult year. Uh, now It now has the highest inflation in South America, higher than Venezuela. That's a hangover from the, the era of President Macri who was uh, brought in the IMF, indebted Argentina up to its eyeballs. Um, and there's, uh, the, the levels of debt is, is, are simply too difficult to recover from at this point. And the runaway inflation has caused a massive disappointment among people in the government led by Alberto, President Alberto Fernandez, in which Cristina Fernandez is the vice president. And Cristina within that is a left, wing faction within the government and she is calling for a much more aggressive approach against the IMF Um, and actually I think that approach could mean that she could stand as president at the next elections and get quite a lot of support including from people who are disappointed in this government because she has a a critique of what's going on and um, yeah definitely very interesting before I move on to Peru I just want to say that I was in when I was lucky enough to be in Buenos Aires for the World Cup final and to join the people celebrating in the streets uh, definitely a once in a lifetime uh, uh, experience but yeah on, on the question of Peru today today right now on Peru there's a there's a general strike going on across the country mass protests going on uh, in every in every town and city in the country Um mostly from uh, unions, uh, rural campesino, indigenous unions uh, against the 
the, the unelected government that's taken power in Peru in very similar terms that happened in, in Bolivia in 2019. Uh, like what happened here in 2019, there's been a numerous massacres, around 30 dead. That number could climb uh, tonight as uh, protests are still raging on. And so we're going to keep an eye out for that. Of course, this has all received the support of, uh, of, of, of the United States and the deposed president, Pedro Castillo, is, is currently in prison. He's been sentenced to 18 months uh, uh, preventive detention. I mean, he, he hasn't been charged of anything, but he will be now in jail for uh, at least 18 months. And then the uh, new uh, pro while investigations are held. And the demand of people in the streets is not only to bring back uh, the president, Pedro Castillo, but also to bring about a new constitution. That's because Peru's current constitution was built, was made uh, during the dictatorship of Alberto Fujimori, which was, who was uh, the last dictator of Peru in the 90s, again, supported by the United States, uh, in which, you know, all of Peru's natural resources are privatized by law, by constitution, uh, and the, the, the inequalities essentially entrenched in that constitution. Mm -hmm. So what people, especially in, in rural areas, want to see is a new constitution in which natural resources can be recovered for, uh, you know, for the public sector and that wealth used to develop and bring people out of poverty. And now we're seeing this just huge divide between urban and rural and uh, as, uh, including within the left itself in middle class, urban left, perhaps more concerned with issues such as environmentalism or, or identity issues. Whilst in rural areas, we see unions organizing around this idea of taking back natural resources and fighting against inequality. So that's, uh, that's, that's the big divide right now in Peru, which is playing out in, a, in an incredibly violent uh, manner. Oli Vargas, you're a walking encyclopedia. Thank you very much for uh, giving us a glimpse of what's happening in Latin America today. Thank you indeed for joining us. Now, don't forget, I'm in Sunderland on the 7th of February, a kind of pre-Valentine's treat. Why don't you treat your husband or your wife, your girlfriend or your boyfriend to a night out in Sunderland with me on Tuesday, the 7th of February. Still tickets left. I think uh, more than half of them are gone, uh, but uh, there's only about five weeks left. So make sure you get yours. I'm on the local radio on Sunderland on Tuesday uh, talking about this. So the Sunderland mother of all talk shows, Roadshow. If you want to be interviewed by Gayatri with her gloves, with her microphone, she'll be moving amongst the audience and I'll be on the stage talking about life in general. Uh, Red Star Betty says, all this has made me want to learn more about Russia. It is funny that their military, tech and energy sectors are still largely state-owned. That's why their military-industrial complex is much more efficient than ours. The government is basically centrist and the communists are the main opposition party. All good points, Betty. Wish more people knew them. Calamity 2007 says, the US really would rather there be no the world than to lose their hegemony. Bonkers Beast says, can Gigi swap his spare bridge 
for a gas pipeline? It's freezing here. Not here, mate, but then that would be to crow that I'm not there. Uh, Neil Curry says they've led us to the brink of nuclear war, killed millions, starved and robbed all over the place right in front of us. We don't want to get into trouble, though. And Jennifer Phillips says, why are only Muslim parents protesting outside schools about this? Where are the Christians and other people who can see through this? Good point, Jennifer. Where are the churches themselves about it? And Big G Haywood says, Scotland being an independent country would be like Iowa being an independent sovereign country. I don't know enough about Iowa to opine. But I think my wife was educated at the university there, but I might be wrong. I'm wrong. <laughs> Back to the lines. Robert is in Oregon. Go ahead, Robert. Hi, George. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year to you. Welcome. Go ahead. I was listening to you speak to one of the callers about the uh, elementary school sexualization of children and the introduction of gender reassignment to young children without yeah. their parents' knowledge or consent. And this is very curious to me because I've heard of it happening over here. Now I've heard of it happening in Scotland. That means it's got to be some sort of a broad-based program, but I'm not aware of it being due to any grassroots desire on part of the public. It's somebody's idea. Whose idea could it be? And what could they hope to accomplish with this? Well, that's uh, my point, Robert. I, I, I'm opposed to lots of things, but I generally understand uh, why they're happening and why the people promoting them are doing so. Uh, why, uh, why events develop in the way that they do. Having been around a long time, more than 50 years in politics, I have a pretty good handle on most things, but on this I do not. And so I constantly ask myself, am I going mad? Is it because of my age? Uh, why can't I compute this? I have never met anyone who wants primary school children to be allowed to reassign themselves as Johnny or Jillian at school, change their clothes, be called a different name at school without their parents' knowledge, uh, with the teachers being permitted to do it without telling the parent. I I've never met anyone who could possibly want that. I've never met anyone who wanted to give children a push down a gender reassignment path that will be, to say the least, extremely painful. Physically, emotionally, psychologically, in terms of their mental health, there's tons of evidence that it will be a very rocky road and one not embarked upon lightly. I've never met anyone who thinks that whilst it should be illegal for a child to smoke, at 16, that they should, at the age of 12, be taking hormones and beta blockers to redirect the path of their gender development. I've never met any such person. I cannot imagine what such a person would be like. That 
it, you're too young to vote. You're too young to smoke, to drink, to gamble, to buy a lottery ticket, but you can change your sex. What kind of madness is this? Or is it me that's mad, Robert? That is really my point. Last word to you. Well, uh, nor have I met anyone. And the only thing that comes to my mind is that we're living in an information age where it can be argued that data is worth more than money, especially when money is created out of thin air as it is. So someone wants to collect data by experimenting on us, on the human race, and that uh, includes children. Somebody's getting data from these procedures, and what they want to do with it, uh, we can only guess. But uh, I know data must be okay. being well, gathered. Well, let's uh, keep guessing. Yeah, let, let, let's keep guessing, Robert, uh, because we mustn't uh, go quietly into this good night. At least I will not, even if I'm the last man standing. But uh, on the 12th of uh, this month, so what, in a few days' time, a week's time, there'll be a big demonstration outside the Scottish Parliament. I think that, uh, as I said earlier, the words, uh, the letters G-R-A will be engraved on the political tombstone of one Nicola Sturgeon, the, for now, Chief Minister in Scotland. Uh, UK 08081965522, please. We're taking your calls right up until the end of the show. Thanks to those donating by Super Chat. Martin Walsh gives £4.49, not given for a couple of weeks. So here you go, GGMU, that's Manchester United. Remember you heard this here. This may be the first time you've heard it. You may laugh, but Manchester United have got a shot at the Premiership title this season. For reasons I could adumbrate, but the hour precludes it. Tax Dodger gives five pounds and says, explain the Lanarkshire referees and the Scottish VAR. GG. <laughs> this is a veiled, not terribly well-veiled reference to the extraordinary situation at the Old Firm game on Monday, which I watched avidly and uh, thought a draw was a fair result, actually, but Celtic were denied two stonewall penalties in which, in full view of all the cameras, a Rangers defender fended off the ball and a potential goal with his hand. Both went to VAR, I presume. I don't know where the VAR was situated on Monday, maybe in Lark Hall or somewhere like that, if some of you will get my drift, uh, maybe in the the Masonic halls of, <laughs> of Lark Hall, I don't know. But unbelievably, neither penalty was given. I'm not complaining because I think 2-2 was a fair uh, result. But it was laughable, actually. Absolutely laughable. And Celtic are so far ahead in the title race, it doesn't matter much anyway. Michael Horstman gives $4.99. Happy New Year, George and family. Thank you, Michael. Paula Samek gives 23 euros, 99 cents. Thanks for organizing the anti-war and anti-NATO rally in London on February 25. Thank you, Paula. Uh, let's go to New York, to the very, very eloquent, erudite, 
and very loyal supporter of the show, Erobos in New York. He is from the People's Party, of course. Go ahead, Erobos. Salubrious evening, George. How are you this evening? By his grace, I'm good. Thank you very much. Happy New Year. Yes, I'd like to start by saying a happy and salubrious New Year to you, your family, loved ones, and much power to you. I'm calling, as you said, to, to reinforce Nick's uh, dynamic and brilliant interview, and I appreciate you very much for having him on and, and by him via us at the People's Party for the movement on the 19th, which would be a sort of co-junction co with yours in uh, the 25th over there in the UK. Um, and it's it's one of the few things I'm optimistic about. I plan to go to D.C. myself and put in a lot of sweat equity and um, do as much as I can to get this off the ground and get it happening because we don't have an anti-war movement anymore. And this was this is intended to re-energize that effort. I know I don't I don't think people. Um, they don't, they don't understand the gravity of what's at stake because to them, it's cerebral, right? It's, uh, they, they understand nuclear war from a movie, from some sort of Hollywood thing or a TV show or a cartoon. They don't, they don't really feel the urgency of it and it's not expressed, at least during the Cold War from my understanding even though I wasn't born then, at least during the Cold War, you know, even they had those ridiculous exercises in school, the kids jumping under the, the, the table there, under the bench, you know, they, they, they pressed the urgency of how serious this is, right, with the Cuban Missile Crisis and the missiles pointed uh, from Turkey to Russia. People had a, a more active sense of what, what's at stake, and we don't have that now, and I think... Um, we have to do as much as we can to interrupt this process because no, none of us are going to be left, right? Once that first missile goes off, none of us are going to be left to, to regret and to cry and to could have, should have, what is. So we, we all have to do what we can to interrupt this process. That's a one-way trip. It's a one-way street. There's no coming back from it. And I applaud you and the great work that you've done. And you always stress the urgency to the audience, to the international audience as an internationalist. And um, I, I definitely appreciate you having us on today. And uh, more power to you, the Workers' Party of Great Britain, the People's Party. And we need this. We really, really need this. Well, uh, that's such a powerful, uh, poetic almost, uh, call. Um, I'm tempted just to leave it hanging there, uh, but I think I should say this. Uh, first of all, it's sobering to learn that you weren't born during the Cold War. I certainly was. And I recall vividly, it's one of my earliest memories, being a child who lived not 20 miles, probably not 10, from a Royal Air Force base called Lukers in Fife, uh, lying in bed, hearing an airplane, as I often did, from Lukers, and wondering if it was the airplane carrying the nuclear bomb that was going to end the world during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Though I was a small child uh, of six years old, 
I had absorbed the anxiety, fear of my parents uh, who endlessly were discussing it and international events in general and I went to bed fearful and woke up to the sound of this Royal Air Force plane. I remember it vividly. It may be one of the very earliest memories I have and I lived through many crises including the lunatic period of Ronald Reagan's presidency when he began to deploy cruise missiles and Pershing missiles in Europe, placing the Europeans in the front line of an ideological Cold War between the US and the then Soviet Union. I was one of those who moved in Parliament and out of Parliament uh, many, many large numbers of people on the demonstrations against these uh, hideous weapons and this phenomenal escalation represented by this deployment. I walked with the late and great Monsignor Bruce Kent, God rest his soul, uh, from uh, Faz Lane in Scotland where they keep the nuclear weapons and where I myself was uh, arrested and thrown into jail once uh, and I walked and spoke every night on that walk with Monsignor Bruce Kent, the leader of CND, the campaign for nuclear disarmament at that time, all the way to Bergfield, the US military base there. It was an epic walk, it was an epic campaign, but we were dealing with momentous issues. And we did so with a bedrock of a mass conscientized group of people in the country that were absolutely dedicated to the fight against the danger of nuclear war. All of that is gone. I was one of the leaders of an anti-war movement in Britain that moved millions in the run-up to and the media aftermath of the Iraq war, the Afghan war, uh, earlier this century, 20 years ago uh, this year. Uh, but I don't know where that's gone. Uh, I'm certainly no longer involved with it. They lost my phone number, ironically, over Julian Assange and my, uh, my unequivocal defense of Julian Assange. I was blackballed, blacklisted, deplatformed in all kinds of strange places not just in universities, but stranger places than that. Even though I see some of the people that blackballed me and deplatformed me now popping up on TV defending <clears throat> Julian Assange. It's a funny old world, as Margaret Thatcher uh, once said. But all of that has gone away now, and we have to rebuild it. And we have to start in Washington, in London, in February to build a new and clearer this time anti-war movement. This is not about pacifism, though pacifists are most welcome. I love me a pacifist. I'm not myself a pacifist. I'll go five rounds with anybody. In fact, there's quite a few I'd like to go five rounds with. I'm not myself a pacifist, but I'm not going to be dragged into a nuclear war for Joe Biden.
for the American Empire. No thanks. That ain't a cause I'm prepared to fight for, let alone die for. It's not a cause I'm prepared to quietly allow my children to die for. So we better get moving and make these two events in Washington, in London, as big a success and as much of a kickstart for a new anti-war movement, a clearer anti-war movement than we have ever had before. Neil Curry says, I like that old Kenny Everett joke. Kingdoms had kings, empires had emperors. <clears throat> what do countries have? Bush writer says, indoctrinate children with literacy, arithmetic, and science. That's an education policy I'll go along with. Linda Petit says, this program has been particularly heartening. Thank you for so many thought-provoking podcasts. Thank you, Linda. Couldn't do it without your generosity. Kel N. says, these things are no longer controversial in the West. They are mainstream. People are not even shocked anymore. Trans storytelling for kids, modeling, Balantiaga clothes, kids in bondage clothes, etc. My God. So it's not just me. It's not just that I'm too old. FESA is in London on the gender bill. Go ahead, FESA. Uh, good evening, George. Um, thank you for taking me on uh, here with me out today. Um, great show. Um, I just wanted to say, firstly, um, you're not alone in regards to this. Uh, um, you, you're not. You, you haven't designed a, a you know an echo chamber. Um, uh, I guarantee you. Um, um, uh, funnily enough, there, there, to be honest with you, I kind of subscribe to the idea that there is some form of agenda that is going on in regards to this whole uh, issue of um, gender realignment and and all of these um, I would hate to say uh, neoliberal values um, because um, I, I do think it is a neoliberal values it's all about liberalism but it, to the extent of just destroying everything that it was uh, essentially standing up for and against um, um, I would like to make a point out that you made um, a few months ago in regards to a uh, transsexual who, who was imprisoned and uh, a late, um, I think uh, raped someone in the prison. And um, these are the kind of things that we are walking towards. Um, now, obviously, the school situation is a bit different. Um, the map situation that you briefly touched upon is a bit different, but they are all part of the same apparatus of this new liberal um, agenda, in my opinion. And unfortunately, it's quite scary yeah. if you look into uh, it. I just don't. I haven't worked I don't out. Know what to, I haven't worked out what the agenda would be, Faisal, or whose agenda it would be. I'm, I may be being thick here. I may be being stupid, uh, and I have been wrong before. I was wrong. I think 1978, 79, uh, around about that time. I may be wrong, but I can't work out who, whose agenda this could be and for what purpose it could serve. Well, I have an idea, George, and I hope I'm wrong, to be honest, because I, I don't mind saying it, but I hope I am generally wrong. But I do think the agenda um, is, is great for people who have a, a 
I don't know if you heard of this term, but the transhumanist um, um, uh, following um, uh, agenda, really. So people who want to have um, uh, an, who have an interest in you know um, molecular science of the human uh, uh, humanity, trying to change it, being able to you know use it, uh, um, change people's um, identity, and, and just the sciences generally. Um, I, I have my own suspicion that you know. Even in London, we, we, we entertain these things like such such as the you know the Tavistock Centre. Um, I don't know if you heard of that, but that was that, that was going along the same lines of you know uh, you know trying to motivate young people and, and and older people to to perhaps change their identity if they feel that what they feel like changing if they're unconfident about how they uh, how they were born, but you know. You know, th- these things, if, if you can achieve it voluntary, voluntarily, because you no longer can do it after, you know, uh, the Nuremberg uh, Code of Conduct, if you can achieve it voluntarily, um, um, all of these uh, scientific endeavors that you wish to achieve, um, it is great for the scientific field. It is great for a lot of things that, um, uh, um, for the drugs um, um, uh, companies like uh, Pfizer and all of that, and whoever is producing these uh puberty blockers and uh, I don't know who they are but I, I imagine it's like you know the top top well, five uh, like I, like I, them I, I don't know either I, I, yeah I, I don't know either Faisal and we shouldn't uh, name names if we if we don't know them but I mean I, I appreciate you uh, giving us your hypothesis it didn't persuade me uh, because the people you're talking about are so few in number and so lacking, actually, in political power, uh, people who want to change molecules and so on. What do I look? I'm just a working man in my prime, uh, maybe even a bit past my prime, but I still feel I'm in my prime. Although my eldest son just texted me saying, "Random question, Dad. When did you go bald? Bald? Who told you I was bald, son? I'm wearing a hat for a quite different reason." I'm just a working man, if not in his prime, then at least still at work. Uh, I don't know about all these things. I'm not an expert by any means about these matters. But this question, first of all, greatly occupies me, and secondly, bemuses me. If someone can give me a more plausible, with all respect to Faisa, a more plausible explanation of who's driving this agenda and why, I would genuinely really appreciate it. It would be very helpful to me. We're going to have to continue another time. Uh, here's some uh, comments. I don't know how the poll went, but um, I think doom probably won between gloom, doom, and boom. Let's hope it's not boom, because boom means the end of the world. Uh, comments on tonight's show. The wee man says British coaches are simply not good enough for Champions League teams. Potter is on his way out. Looks that way to me, although I haven't seen tonight's scores. Uh, Tax Dodger says the Americans paid the Marshall Plan with German gold, then took interest from the Germans for implementing the Marshall Plan. Jokers. Indeed, we were still paying America for its assistance in World War II, which was belated. But welcome. Uh, I think in 2007 or 8, I was on air on the mother of all talk shows on the day 
that we finished paying for Lend-Lease that America had given us during World War II. I'm not making that up, younger viewers. Morpheus X says, remember when your country is under sanctions by the US, that means your government is not corrupt and trying to fight against tyranny. So don't blame your government, but blame the US Five Eyes imperialists. And uh, some more super chats as we run towards the end of the show. Glee me gives five US dollars and says the Libertarian Party will be joining the anti-war demo in Washington, D.C. on February the 19th. Good, everyone should be there in the United States. Head for Washington, D.C. And Toy Chung gives 158 Hong Kong dollars, which Toy sounds a great, great deal of money. Uh, but whether it is or it isn't, I'm very grateful to you for making it. Let's squeeze in one last call from Ohio, from Jeff on Trump. Go ahead, Jeff. Mr. Galloway, I must say that your intro today was spot on. I loved it. You, you articulated it very well, and I'm 100% in agreement with it. Now, the, I'm sure you pressed the time, but the reason, the only thing I have uh, that I don't understand is why you dislike Donald Trump. I was at the January 6th. I was at the Capitol. I heard his speech. I believe that there was election fraud. Um, and my support for him is not because I like him personally or that he's a great speaker. He's quite the opposite. But he's not one of them. He's an outsider. And he was, instead of assassinated as in JFK, he was politically assassinated. He was attacked from day one. And I kind of pull for the underdog. And anything is better than the status quo. So is, do you have a particular issue with Mr. Trump? No, uh, I didn't disagree with a single word you just said. Uh, I characterized it on the night. I was again broadcasting live when it happened, when Trump was elected. I predicted his victory. I predicted his victory in the, in the primaries and then in the presidential election. And I was on air live uh, when he was elected. And I said then what I say now. I'm not happy that Donald Trump is the president of the United States, but I'm very happy that Hillary Clinton isn't. And I would have been very happy that Joe Biden wasn't if uh, he had uh, failed. Uh, so it's not that I love Trump. It's that I hate his enemies more uh, than I hate him. Uh, I have no uh, personal animus towards him, but I do have very grave political differences with him. <coughs> and we heard some of them tonight. We heard about his relationship with Bolsonaro in Brazil. We heard tonight about his attitude to Venezuela, where he tried to kill the people there for political purposes. We know what he did in Iran. <coughs> Excuse me, we know what he did in the killing uh, of, uh, of General Soleimani. We know the many mistakes that he made in foreign policy, the greatest of which was appointing 
John Bolton, of all people, to run it. The idea that you can be an outsider but engage all these profoundly insiders is fatuous to say the least. So <coughs> either Trump was a fool in doing that or he was a knave in doing that. Which of the two uh, doesn't really matter because the end result, the moving of the US Embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv, the endorsement of the illegal annexation of the Golan Heights, uh, the uh, attempt to help uh, the ISIS and Al-Qaeda uh, defeat the Syrian Arab Republic in Damascus. I could go on, but time is against me, Jeff. I have nothing personal against them. And I agree with you entirely that the others are worse. Biden is worse than Trump. Clinton would have been worse than Trump. And so I have a feeling that if uh, things break the way they might, Trump will be back. If he runs, I think he'll get the nomination. And if he gets the nomination, if things break the way I think they're going to break, then he will be back. And of course, I'll criticize him for what needs criticizing, and I'll support him if he does anything that needs uh, supporting. But alas, Jeff, I don't have time to give you the last word, and I apologize for that. Do come back on Sunday if you'd like to respond. I've only got time to say <coughs> in the seconds left available to me, with the voice left available to me, that I hope that you have enjoyed tonight's mother of all talk shows. This is episode 201. And God willing, I'll be back on Sunday at 7 p.m. UK time with the mothership, the one and only, the original mother of all talk shows. And why don't you bring someone with you? Why don't you make your New Year resolution the recruitment of one more viewer to the mother of all talk shows, starting on Sunday. I bid you all a good night. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.